Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast, and we're glad to have you with us once again. We are podcasting once more from Flatbed Pizza here in South uh, Windsor, Connecticut, and uh, we're uh, uh, here with the old gang. The whole gang. Yeah, we're doing great. Is it possible to turn down the? the great, great. So we just asked the uh, the waitress to turn down the turned on hot leg. <laughs> yeah, so it's Rod Stewart, right? It is Rod, Rod Stewart. Stewart. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. I'm not I sure. never, I never figured, I could never figure out what the girl saw in that guy. Yeah, there's a certain kind of woman that just is nuts about Rod Stewart. What, yeah. what's going on? Like it that? had to be Jeff Beck, the guitarist. They were confusing with Rod Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> but you well, know the kind of woman I'm talking about. <laughs> Yeah, I keep going to ZZ Top. Every girl's crazy about a sharp-dressed man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You kind of look like one of those guys now, yeah, You got I, the beard going? I, I, I got a while to go before I catch up to yeah. them. Anyways, well, you just heard the gang, uh, as I noted, uh, or maybe I didn't know yet. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm the pastor, the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester. Okay, and to my left today... Glenn Sunshine, I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And to Glenn's left, not politically necessarily. <laughs> Is there anyone to Glenn's left? I don't know. It could Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and definitely not theologically. I think we're, we comport was all, pretty I was, well. Just so people know, I was tongue-in-cheek. Right. Glenn is a very conservative person. That's right. I'm Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, and teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Okay, well, great. Uh, uh, it's, it's Tom's day, by the way, okay. and he's got a great subject. Before, but before we get to that, we want you to, to note a couple of things, because... In our enthusiasm, in our excitement, when we just get rolling, we come to the end of the show and we think, oh, oh, we need to say this, we need to say that. The folks at the Fight, Laugh, Feet Network are just really wanting us to talk about certain things. And one of those things that they want us to talk about is the Fight, Laugh, Feast app that you can get for your phone. I know it's on iPhone because I've got it on mine, and I, I believe it's available uh, Glenn is confirming it's available on. Is it Android? Is it, is yeah. It, so, so you can you can get it, and it's it's a it's an important thing to get for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons is eventually we're not going to be uh, dropping our show in two places. Eventually, we're going to be completely with the Fight Laugh Fe Feast Network folks. So, better to jump on the bandwagon sooner than later if you want to continue to listen to us. Now, when will that happen? We don't have a date in mind. We want to give people plenty of time to make that transition. But it will, it will happen uh, eventually. And then the other thing is we are going to get another Kickstarter going. We mentioned that in the last uh, episode. And this, this new Kickstarter uh, is going to build on the first one. We, we had a, a successful Kickstarter campaign when we got the, got the podcast off the ground uh, about a year ago. It's hard to believe. And uh, we got some good. We got some equipment. We want to get more good equipment. We want to get better microphones. We want to get a website set up. Uh, we want to be able to just uh, package things better so that uh, everything we've done is more accessible to people. So you'll be hearing about that. If you want to to, to make sure that uh, you are included in that in that campaign, if you go to our Facebook page. Uh, the Theology Pugcast on Facebook. You can go and uh, just like it, and when the when the new Kickstarter campaign is is underway, you'll you'll be sure to see uh, plenty of uh, action there on the Facebook page about that. Now, if you send us messages on Facebook through the page, I'm afraid we're just terrible. We're just not very good. I mean, we we we're we're, we're you know we're all like the nutty professor. You remember the Nutty Professor, right? We're just absent-minded. You know, we just kind of wrapped up on our particular projects. And every once in a while, we check in on the page, and we say, oh, isn't that neat? Someone left a message. I wonder who's going to take care of that. <laughs> I have to go back through. We do appreciate you putting them there. We, we, we Maybe do. We, we do. will get to it. And, and, and sometimes we do respond. But, it's, but if we don't respond, it's not because we don't like you. or, or It's just because... We're rude and, and, and thoughtless. <laughs> we need prayers. <laughs> and absent-minded, and you know what I'm getting at. Anyway, well, without further ado, off to you, uh -oh. Tom. Okay. Price. 
So we are um, kind of picking up the old theme in relation to theology podcast with theology today, <laughs> specifically a, a systematic theological theme, a biblical theme. Um, but uh, one of the things, it's always my favorite to teach, um, but it's not merely just because it's the most profound subject matter, but because we're dealing with the most profound reality that is God <laughs> and the Christian understanding of God and um, <clears throat> really unpacking some of the profundities that we have distinctly as Christians. Um, and then we will kind of talk about the significance of all of that. Um, I'm going to start with a quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, for those unfamiliar with it, maybe Chris or, Chris or Glenn could let the audience know. I've got it all memorized. Okay. <laughs> I'm lying. <laughs> <laughs> the Westminster Assembly met from 1643 to 1649 in England uh, during the period of the English Civil War, and they, the Puritans were busy trying to turn the Anglican Church into Presbyterians. Yeah, they didn't pull it off. Didn't quite pull it off. But they did, uh, in the Westminster Assembly, they did write a confession, a couple of catechisms, and a book of order that's still used by Presbyterians today. Yeah, yep. Yeah, uh, and, and depending on which... Presbyterian are talking about, you know, there'll be a, 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 a more uh, sort of intentional uh, focus on subscription. You know, the, the different denominations have very, some denominations have a very loose understanding, others right. are much more strict. That's right. And so what we will begin to see, even through some of our conversation, is those who have classically held a much closer strictness to the doctrine material, um, maybe at a point now which they're following some of that looser where it's, um, it's something you, you say more as a convention but not so much as a conviction and, um, and a belief. Do you, want, do you think maybe they just don't understand it anymore? Part of it, because I think. Of bad uh, I think, education? I think that's it. There, there is a part of it there. And I do think the, the, what we'll get into is the, the, well, the big word here, ontological vision has shifted. Mm. The way we understand um, reality. I'm going to do a cider. Um, I think that, the, or another way of putting a metaphysical, the picture has changed and I think has encroached into, and I'm going to explain some of that history, but it has encroached into the Christian and the evangelical, you know, conscious. Um, it's become part of its, uh, become part of its ass assumption or worldview without really critically knowing something's changed. But I know we're going to talk about a particular aspect of theology or a particular thing. That's right. We're talking about divine simplicity today, and, um, and we're really introducing it. It's a comprehensive uh, teaching. Um, and, and in one way, one could make the argument classically that it is probably the mo one of the most fundamental aspects that theologically safeguards Christians from idolatry. Okay. Now, that's, that's, that's a great way to put it, but when people hear the word simplicity, yes, they think simple. That's right. They're thinking simple like... Simple-minded. Minded, yeah, that's right. So here, here from the Westminster Confession, I'm going to unpack a little section 2-1, and then I'll hone in on what is be meant by simplicity, and then we'll kind of, I'll, I'll hint at what we mean, we'll trace some history, then we'll get more comprehensive with what we mean. So here's the quote. Um, there's but... Well, your beer is coming. Let's let's get yeah, that. My to, let's get it to the table before. That's right. We don't <laughs> want to blow away the waitress. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. Appreciate it. You got it. Everyone doing good? Good. Next nice. round, I'll grab one. Absolutely. You Thanks. Got it. Thank you. There is but one only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. Immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute. With, and so that is defining yeah. the true That's God. That's defining simplicity, though. That's simplicity. That's right. right. And, and the true God. But, now, but, you, but you see, the thing is, is most people will say, that doesn't seem simple to me. I didn't right. understand half the words you just used. That's right. And, and before we, I go back to that, I want to say this would be a quote that someone like William James in his famous writing, psychologist William James and philosopher, 
um, one of the fathers of modern pragmatism and really one of the, I, I would argue, one of the most significant figures and replacing our conception with God with the therapeutic notion. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and that's a show in itself, yeah, maybe. Yeah. But one of the things he does within in, in that, uh, the varieties of religious experiences, he takes a quote like this with these same attributes um, from a, a, you know, different traditions confession. And he said, basically, well, if this doesn't have any significant utility, throw it, throw it to the wind. That's right. It's cash value. That's cash. pragmatism. That's right. right. If, if this is a, there is nothing that used. That is what most church growth gurus are preaching. And so, when we hear this list, there's one living and true God who's infinite in being and perfection, most pure spirit and vision. How much of us... You know, have have a lot of um, engagement with these aspects of God's very nature, and what we're dealing with here is God's something something to deal with the way we reference God's true nature, a, a grammar that that guides our talk to orient properly and correspond to the reality that God is, and so this language is doing something of of supreme value but not utility. That doesn't mean there are not byproducts that, that impact everything else. The argument is actually is. It would benefit everything else when we actually move in this direction. <coughs> Classically... But isn't this, isn't, this, isn't this sort of implicit in Jesus' words, seek first the kingdom, kingdom of God, that's right. and all these things will be added unto you? Unto, yeah. If you go for the, all the other things, you miss the kingdom. That's right, that's right. And you miss the point of the kingdom is knowing the per, the, the, that is that which is of utmost value in and of itself, not for any other reason. Mm -hmm. So if God is valuable in knowing God as the highest value, yes, there are all kinds of byproducts of that. There is plenty of Reformed and Lutheran pro-me that we get out of it. But when we consider the benefits, it's because of what knowing the one who gives us the benefits as the one who gives us the benefit. The privilege is knowing God. But you, but you know how the pragmatists work. Yeah. They'll, they'll work, they'll say, well, we can get back to the source if we begin with the benefits. That's, yes. So what they'll, yeah. what, they'll, what they'll argue is that, well, the reason why I did this, this, this series on you know, good sex as a Christian. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, Versus bad sex for a Christian. Well, but, I mean, yeah. but just good sex. You know, the idea <laughs> that, okay, I, 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 we've printed up a lot of promotional literature. We've, we've bought some radio advertisements. Yes. We've put some things in the local yeah. newspaper. We've given our people yeah. uh, cards to, to share with their friends. Yeah. You know, Christians have the best sex or something, yeah, like, yeah. something like that. Something you know what I'm getting yeah. And so now everybody is like, you know, thinking about sex. That's right. <laughs> and then we try to slip God in, you know, right. sort of as like, uh, you know, the fine print or something like yeah. that. And what ends up happening is, is God is now someone who's useful to me. That's right. For the thing I want. And, and, and yeah. these church growth gurus are, are, yes. are satisfied with a lot of butts in the pews, not even pews anymore, whatever yeah. they're sitting in these days. Maybe they're not. I don't know. But... But they're 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 satisfied with an aggregate of you know as a, as a sort of an attendance number, yeah. and uh, they're not actually uh, getting to God. Yes, you don't get to God that way. That's right. That's right. That's right. And so what what they confuse with that which manifests the reality of the living God, liberation from sin, weaning us from idols and all the covenant blessings that go with being oriented to the living God, right? The one who can deliver, that can answer prayer, can do these things. The point of those things is not merely that we're the ones, um, you know, getting something that allows us to enhance our unreformed existence. <laughs> that's right. And regenerating this. That's right. That's right. It, it, it isn't that. And so, okay, we haven't went far astray. What we're doing is we're looking at the ramifications of what happens when um, when we, we think of God in such a way that is radically different than the way in which classic Christianity um, looked at God. One could make a parallel on the philosophical world with you know something like Roger Scruton will talk about the, the non-utility of beauty 
doesn't mean beauty has no impact, but its impact is fundamentally in. It's beyond what it merely does for us in, 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 in running our engine. It's a way of reorienting ourselves towards something more profound and therefore has more of a profound impact on our existence or truth, beauty, goodness, whatever transcendental you pick. Um, early Christians understood this. And well, so it, it seems to parallel with the dynamic of uh, intrinsic value versus exchange value. That's mm -hmm. right. You know, exchange value is, is you know something that's known in the market. We know the we know the value of something because of what people are willing to give for it. The idea that something could be intrinsically value yes. valuable was something that was, I think, uh, so, something that people in the past grasped, but we've lost. And I, and I think one way of getting into it, and this is good because it's leading up to to kind of our theme. But one of the things you recognize, especially in the call of Christ is they gave up all and followed him. Yeah, the pearl of great price. The pearl of great price. So what, what did Peter see in Christ? He didn't see a better way to make his, his fishing business get yes. bigger. That's right. Although it did do it, that. Although it did. That's right, that's right. But he didn't pray the prayer of Jabez. Right. <laughs> right. Although it did do that. And remember what happened. And see, and, but what happened is when he oriented himself to right, those nets were so full that his fishing all day looking merely for doing the right fishing technique or using religion. Well, well and when, but when he saw the Pearl of Great Price, he dropped the nets. Gave up didn't all care, Didn't care about fish anymore. That's right. That's right. And again, this doesn't mean the call of Christ is such that our other callings don't have value. It's talking about the Pearl of Great Price. And this is the same thing in terms of the doctrine of God. There is something within it that is more than what us getting our nets filled. Mm -hmm. And it is the reality that... that uh, and even more than a new conehead. That's right. <laughs> the conehead can merely serve as a sacramental sign, not an ordained one, but definitely a creaturely one. When oriented to God the right way, it brings happiness and joy. <laughs> when not oriented to God the right way, it brings right, destruction. Bring destruction. That's right. Now, that, that, is, that is actually really good. Yeah. <laughs> what do you say, Glenn? What do you say? Well, I'm just reminded of the quote from Ben Franklin that beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. Yeah. But <laughs> Sometimes even Ben Franklin can get one. Well, I think Bill Bright out. actually got his little thing, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, from Franklin. Franklin. <laughs> Talking about beer. Yeah, beer. Okay. Proof that God loves you. <laughs> um, so, so when we get to these, these aspects that seem very detached and very otherworldly, infinite in being and perfection, most pure spirit, invisible, without body. Now, you, you go back to another biblical moment. Um, the woman who meets Jesus at the well, and of course he kind of says, hey, look, get me some water. Today would be considered, I guess, sexist, but back guess, then, uh, and even calling her woman for that matter, <laughs> woman, get me some water. Look, we don't deal with you. But it wasn't because she was woke or feminist. It's because they actually weren't dealing with people that were... were um, Samaritans. Samaritans and, that's right. Talk about unwoke. Unwoke. <laughs> but one of the things that happens in this encounter, besides Jesus showing the divine light of, of who he is, is, is that he's mentioned this thing, well, there's coming a time at which we, that people will worship in spirit and in truth. Right. Now, either this is the most lacking in pragmatic value, other than the fact that you start to worship not merely in Jerusalem or only for Jews, or we're dealing with something that is profoundly to everyone's advantage to know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yet you think of, okay, we're going to worship God in spirit and in truth, not merely in this particular locale, but unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So what... Okay, so what? What do I get out of that? Mm -hmm. Well, you get everything out of it. <laughs> That's one thing. Right. But similarly, it's the same thing with, with all these other aspects. I mean, what we're going, what's going on here is we're starting to make a list of those aspects that Jesus said are the most significant thing. Jesus in John's Gospel says, You want to understand me? Understand from whence I come. Prior to, notice John's Gospel doesn't merely go back to mere genealogies, it goes yeah. back to eternity. Well, that's an interesting contrast. I had never thought about that. Before. So John's Gospel, you want to make sense in the full sense of who I am. Yeah, yeah. Um, you want to understand my messianic vision and mission for that much. You may need to understand its divine origin and not, matter of fact, my. And you want to understand me. 
You don't merely, not merely the works I do, but because I am from the Father. Yeah. He came into his own, his own didn't receive him. To those that received him, he gave the power to become children of God. But of course, this was born of God, not them. He, the light, comes into the world who is the illuminating light of the world. And so what we have going on here is Christ saying that if you want to make sense of his mission, the most primal reality that you make sense of his saving, redemptive work is his eternal relation to the Father prior to creation. In the beginning, prior to creating, was the Word. And the Word-Father relation is more primal than the Creator-Creature relation. Mm -hmm. That's what we're dealing with here. Mm -hmm. We're not dealing... The Creator-Creature relation is one that has to do with the creature's relation to the creature, Creator. But it is not intrinsic to the nature of God. If we want to understand God's relation in Christ to the creature, we need to understand it first from the light of Christ's relation to the Father eternally. The eternal, imminent Trinity, full and complete in itself, and all that they share of the divine attributes, is the light that gets shined down in and illumines who Christ is. This is why when Peter engages Christ, um, who, do you, who are people saying I am? You're this, you're this, you're that. That's on, the, that's on the creaturely, and in that case, even the fallen level. But who do you say I am? Well, you are the son of the living God. Blessed are you among all humans, because flesh and blood, creatureliness, the historical, the natural, the pragmatic didn't reveal this. But my Father who is in heaven, mm -hmm. the one whose eternal relation to me is the light that shines on what, who I am and what I'm doing, mm -hmm. the eternal Son, the Son of the living God. And so these attributes and aspects of God are the very thing that sheds light on everything that God has done for us in Christ and the Spirit. They are what illumine the divinity of it, right. the divine origin of it, and, and the divine the divine significance of it. Now the next thing is, this is where I want to get into simplicity. It's this, it's this line, without body, without parts. Okay. Divine simplicity is another way of saying God has no parts. It's so much the case that a, a great book that came out by James Dolezal, not to be confused with Rachel Dolezal, you all remember who she yep. is. That's yep. another show, another time. The girl who, I yep. think she believed that she was transracial. Um, and she now has changed her name, apparently. But anyway, James Dolezal <laughs> is not wrestling with that issue. He's wrestling with theologies that are actually denying or starting to compromise on the doctrine of God. And he wrote a book called God Without Parts, Divine Simplicity and the Metaphysics of God's Absoluteness. He's a great Reformed guy. Richard Muller actually writes the uh, foreword to the second book, um, which is called All That Is In God Is God. I recommend both of these when I teach the doctrine of God to my students. They are probably the best uh, reform engagement with this topic for in addressing contemporary shifts and compromises. Um, so, you know, it's worth picking up those two. But anyway, um, one of the things that he starts to notice is this phrase, God without parts. Well, what in the world does that mean? We don't talk about that stuff. Why is that even significant? Well, one of the reasons it's significant is because when we understand classical ways of understanding reality, that which is made up of parts depends on those parts and being put into a unity in order to be what they are. And so your things that are composed require, A, a composer, and secondly, things to make up the composition. So when classical theologians says it talks about divine simplicity, they're saying the kind of reality God is is that it neither depends on anything higher to be that which defines its essence, but secondly, there aren't parts that make up the essence. All that is in God is God. All of those things we think of different attributes are not different attributes in God. They're God. Yes, right. And so this is what it's doing. And so we, they are different from our side, the creaturely relation. They're not in God's side. That's why holiness and love are never, never tensions in God, because it's the same reality. Or justice and compassion. That's right. It's the same reality. And so, so all that is in God is God, but secondly, God is dependent on no parts to be pieced together to be God. And so Thomas Aquinas put it this way, to which all the, 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 the classical Reformed theologians agree. And this is God's essence and existence are one and the same. Mm -hmm. It's God's very nature, essence, 
to be. God is I amness. The metaphysical stuff is drawn merely off the biblical. Mm-hmm. I am. Who do you, who, 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 what name shall we give? Well, I am. Well, what I am. And remember, the scripture, metaphysics, name, together. The reality and the name. So let's, let's stop for a minute and think a little bit about it's this, this sort of the implications for yeah. our, our understanding of God, but yeah. also how those necessarily affect our understanding of ourselves. Yeah. So, you know, when we think about, uh, you know, God, you know, as with as, as, uh, in terms of uh, in, with reference to divine simplicity, mm-hmm. that means there's not any becoming. Correct. There's no process that yeah. God is fought, you know, sort of moving through. That's right. Uh, this is one of the reasons why we can say God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's right. That, From everlasting to everlasting, right. you are our God. These aren't metaphors when it, when right. applied to right. to God. And, and, and this, you just shot down an entire school of theology in one sentence. That's it. And yes. I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're, and we're going to get, we'll kind of unpack that whole school and why it's the here. But but let's yeah. step back again and yeah. think about something that we've, we've yeah. visited many times, and that's the whole idea that we kind of make ourselves... Yeah. In other words, that there's nothing essential yeah. to being a human being. Yeah. Uh, you know, so getting back to the earlier point that you made, Tom, yeah. about the fact that that if we seek God for His own sake, there are benefits that we that accru- yeah. accrue to us. But if we seek the things that accrue to us, we lose God. Yes. Yeah. So if we if we understand that that God is simple, then that uh, in that his existence and his essence are one and the same, yeah. then that means that in some sense, as being creatures made in the image of God, mm-hmm. there's some way in which that, that can be applied to us. Yeah. Now, now, obviously, we're not God. That's right. How it is applied to us is we are composed. Mm-hmm. God is simple, being itself. Yep. We are composed. We are not our being. But we're not the composer. That's right. It, we, we, it requires... And so we are not our being like God is. God, another way of putting it is God is being and we have being. God is being, we have being. Why is that, why is that different? Because it's God's nature to be. This is why this lunacy when people say that, I, well, I, I'm not sure if God exists. It's like saying I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if existence exists. I mean, right, it's, right. I mean, I know there's some nuance in the language and being and existence have a little, a little bit, but it's just, it's like saying the same thing. They right. don't understand what we mean by God from the start with. Mm-hmm. But but the the next thing is it's it, you know it's God's it's God's nature to be. In other words, being is what God is. <laughs> being, mm-hmm. I am this. Right. What is I am? The self-existent one is the way theologians take that. The one whose nature is to be. There isn't anything God requires outside of being God to be, mm-hmm. and being God is sheer isness. Now, creation is the giving to that which isn't by necessity anything. It's nothing. It's, it's the creation of being from that which is being itself. So it's created being. It gets all of its in, in him we live, move, and have our being is the fact that apart from that, are, we have no, we have no. So we are not our own being, therefore we aren't simple. We are composed. We require something to take our existence, and then our essence is that which needs existence to be, and weave them together. Yeah, I want to return to that, but yeah. I know you had a thought yeah. there. Glenn. Well, there, there are a couple of them that are kind of floating around. The first one, though, is, is something I've been thinking about really since you read the description from Westminster. And that's what we're talking about here is holiness in its technical sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word holy really points to the idea of something that is separate, yeah. that, that is different from everything else. Yes. And I find it interesting that the creatures in heaven that are literally the closest to God, yep. the thing that they're constantly talking about is God's holiness, how he's unlike anything else that's out there. Yeah. So when we're, we're looking at all of these things that seem so abstract to us, mm-hmm. There's a good reason for that. It's because they're completely beyond yes. any the transcendence again. Yes, they're completely right. beyond anything in our experience, and in a sense, completely unlike everything that's here. So, yes. God is simple. We're composed. That's right. God is the composer. We're the composee. Something um, like something like something that. like that. Yeah. So, and by the way, on on simplicity, one thing that might be helpful for some of our listeners is the idea go to the opposite go to the idea of irreducible complexity yes what irreducible complexity says in in uh, design theory intelligent design theory is that 
there are certain things that are put together in such a way that you remove one part or change one part of it and it no longer works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that idea of complexity is the opposite of what God is. God is yeah. not complex. He's simple because there it, are no parts and, to remove that's right. or and change. It isn't what it is, and that's the thing. So you can remove right. a part. It no longer is what it is. Right. And so, But with God, it isn't such because there aren't any parts removed. God is fully what God is, which is another word. It's, it's very abstract sounding because we don't think this way anymore. It's what, what theologians call pure actuality meaning there is no potential in God because there are no parts that need to be actualized. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that needs to be added. If, if you are perfectly realized being, which, look, this is why I, I you know, Dave Bentley Hart, I have a lot of disagreements with him, but he is, he is correct on his classical affirmation of the doctrine of God. One of the things he said is, he, he said, that whole debate nonsense that arose that there's a big contrast between the School of Athens and the school of Jerusalem's sheer nonsense. Yeah, right, right. Because even on the philosophical level, is is you're still going to have to move to have something have the perfection of self-existent being in order to account for anything else. Mm -hmm. You can't get away from it. You mm -hmm. have something has to be in order for anything else to, to be, and something has to be in such a way that it is fully actualized. Now, we get that it's not merely as a, a philosophical argument. It is complemented by divine revelation as it manifested itself through the covenant people of God. So we, we have sure... Before you jump too yeah. far ahead, yeah. <laughs> I, I want to get back to this, this uh, you know, Tertullian's notion or that yeah. there's nothing that Jerusalem and, and Athens have in common. Yeah. Uh, Uram Hazoni, are you familiar with him? He's a, uh, a Jewish thinker. Uh, I think he's uh, he's uh, located in Jerusalem. But he wrote a book on nationalism not too long ago. But before that, he wrote a book on philosophy, making the very point you just made. Yeah. You know, here's a guy who's Jewish, yeah. is essentially saying that um, you know, kind of what was going on within Greece was also going on within Hebraic mm -hmm. tradition. Yeah. That that these these worlds are not not so <clears throat> so. Uh, impossible to reconcile. Yeah. And actually, the early Christians, with the exception of Tertullian, the early Christians really understood this. Yeah. And Wasn't Tertullian condemned as a heretic? Yeah, ultimately, the ultimately was for Montanism. Yeah, but yeah. In, in his defense, not before we throw him <laughs> under the bus, he did, not only did he give us a term trinity, but and some of yep. the distinctions, but secondly, he was astute in philosophy and understood I think better than we give him credit for the, the proper relation. I think he. I think his point was rhetorical and hyperbole on mm -hmm. in and in a different direction. Well, actually, Matt Levering does a does a, a book on him in Proofs for God. He does an essay on that. It's worth reading for people who want to follow the history up. But I think to be fair. But on the other hand, if he is to be associated with the quote, well, we can send him off to the mountains. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and to be honest with you, I'm not sure he really was a heretic. I mean, the church yeah. didn't like some of the things he had to say, so he's condemned. But it's like origin. Um, but yeah, there, it's... Yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff in him that's certainly worthwhile. But in general, what you see among the early church fathers is the argument that the philosophers were the Greek world's road to the truth that's best expressed in Christianity in the same way that the prophets were the Jewish world's road to the truth best expressed in Christianity. They saw complete compatibility between them, which is what this is held throughout the Middle Ages. It's into the Renaissance, which is why you have the School of Athens in the vestibule of the Sistine Chapel. Right, yeah. Probably folks have actually seen that. Uh, that mm. It's uh, Michelangelo, right? No, that's uh, Raphael. Raphael, that's okay, right? I stand corrected. I, that's right. Yeah. But the people have seen that where they've got Plato and Aristotle ar yeah. arguing with each other. One arguing about, about, yeah. Plato arguing about universal and, stuff. Yeah, that's right, right. I actually was in the Vatican once with some friends, uh, and um, I was asking. I know that painting is here somewhere, and they said, "Would you please turn around?" <laughs> and I looked, and there it was. Really, that was my encounter with it. So, yeah, mm -hmm. we kind of were joking the whole time by pointing up and down. The rest of that's the right. time, that's there. right. The, the, every every philosophy textbook that's ever been published has with got that in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Usually, right on the cover. That's right. Anthony Kenny's, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, so another aspect that that's kind of related to this. Now, let me just kind of say a little bit more about that. People are like, so what? Well, it has a profundity to it because what it does is it is a it's a grammatical safeguard at this point that preserves the fundamental dissimilarity of God from the creature. And so this is what starts to get eradicated. Now, I want to be very clear on how this works. 
what is established in the classical Christian understanding of, from the creator-creature relation is something that has classically been understood as the doctrine of analogy. Now, I don't have time to get into the difference between the analogy of faith and the analogy entis, but classically, Protestants held the same analogy of being that all classical Christians held. Yep. All set? Yeah. And so, um, but I don't want to get into that debate now. It's, that's another show. That's another show, and it's a, it's a long one. But let's just talk about analogy itself. So how does analogy work for Christians? Well, what, the, what analogy is doing is always preserving something fundamental to, to kind of Christian understanding of God and speaking of God. Now, here's something that kind of, if this is a complexity that Christians have in particular, because on the one hand, we talk about the commandments of God, that for our own good, it's fundamental that we not make God, an idol out of God. And we don't use creaturely ways of understanding God to posit as God. We don't bring God down to the creaturely. And that's fundamentally for our own good, being made in the image of God. Um, and, and so what, what comes from that is death, hell and the grave, really. That's we, what we introduce. Um, um, but one of the things, if you notice, don't circumscribe me. Don't try to, to make God like the creaturely. God is not like the creaturely. And so what we have in a strange, we have to walk as theologians, a fine balancing act. We have to speak faithfully about God and, and reference God, the true transcendent nature of God, but the only language and concepts we have to deal with that come from our, our encounter with creatureliness in the furniture of the universe. So God is a strong tower, right? Well, if I was saying God is a strong tower, I'd be an idolater. But why can the psalmist say it? Because the psalmist is saying it obviously in a way that is nearly not talking about God as being a literal or a, you know, a material strong tower. And so what we're dealing with here is analogy. The reason analogous, analogous language can be used um, to speak in reference... Yeah. Speak in reference, God, is because it is governed by a couple of theological points when it is used properly. The first point is it's governed by the fact that the creation is similar to God, even though God is not similar to the creation. We are God's creature. Therefore, the, the perfections of God, if you will, truth, love, goodness, those things are refracted in the creation of God. They're the part of the effect in God being the cause and having those as God's nature. But think about that. The creature is made in the image of God, but God is not made in the image of the creature. We're made in the form and likeness of God, but God is not made in the form and likeness of humanity. Of course, the incarnation brings a different thing in, but we'll, we'll get into that. But even still, we're dealing with analogy. Christ's human nature is analogous to the divine nature in relation. It is not the divine nature. This is where people get confused. Um, and so, so, um, and so then, on the, then there's another thing that's going on here. And so proper analogy, therefore, governs itself by what? Well, the fact that God alone is such that God is God, the great I am. So what happens when God manifests his name to Moses? Who shall I say shall send me? Well, God references his name by referencing his reality. I am. God's self-naming, when God chooses to name himself, God does not pick a part of the creation to do it. He picks the reality of his own being. So if we're going to use other creaturely language analogously to apply to God, we always have to govern it by the fact that we're referencing God first and foremost it being governed by God as the self-existent one. Now, there are a couple of things about this. Yeah. <clears throat> one is, uh, of course, you know, the, uh, the fact that the, the, the doctrine of analogy prevents us from uh, over-identifying. Yeah. You know, so it keeps us from idolatry. Yeah. But there's a, there's, a, there's a danger that you can run into when you go the other direction. Yeah. If you make the, the, the creation too arbitrary. That's right. If it has no sort of relationship to the wisdom of God. That's right. 
then you run the risk of saying that there's really nothing in the creation that can be used to say true things about God. Excellent okay. point. Now, it, I'm, I'm going to go with the history here. Two different things are at work. At one point, you, you've got the idea that God wrote two books. Uh, both of them are uh, sources of revelation. You've got natural revelation and you've got special revelation in Scripture. They're both com they're compatible with each other. They both require a lot of study to understand all of these kinds of things. But the point is that there are things that you can learn about God from studying the universe. That's Romans 1. Yeah. But that's essentially a via positiva approach, positive approach. What can we affirm about God? The other way of looking at it is the via negativa, the, the negative approach in that God is a, in essence, un he's holy. He's unlike anything that exists. Um, we talked, I believe, last week about uh, Nicholas of Cusa. I believe he came up. Cusa believed that the finite world is the opposite of the infinite world, so the only way you can know anything about the infinite, about God, is by inverting this world. And that's, in essence, what we just did when we talked about irreducible complexity versus simplicity. And that's what we're saying when we say analogy. Right. Because analogy is saying that, that, that while you can say this, it has to be qualified by the way in which it is not as well. Right. So for every and positive claim, we have to, we have to make the reality yeah. of God that which qualifies it. Yeah, and someone like Husa puts so much emphasis on the qualifications that he actually says you have to invert this world, look at it like in a mirror, in order to even begin to see God in it. That's right. Whereas other theologians are going to say, eh, no, not really. There are, there are things that we can learn directly. But I think most, like would come where Aquinas does and most theologians who would say that what we're doing when we do that is we're not, we're not probing into what the mystery is. We don't, we don't know God in this ineffable reality. We're referencing it properly. In other words, to speak of God as infinite by merely negating the finite does not tell me much about what infin infinity is. It just merely says it's not like finitude. And this is why Aquinas said there is a holy mystery there that we're just using our grammar to properly refer to. We are, we're, not, we're referencing it the right way and not importing idolatry onto it, but we're not telling you what God is. That's, that's alone for, for God. And, and so, and so these, these, these aspects, the incommunicable attributes are never probed. And so the, the, the via negativa is, and that's what divine simplicity is very much doing. It's just not parts. There's no parts. It's governing... The, another way of thinking what divine simplicity is doing is always affirming the fact that God is uncreated being and we're creaturely being. And, it's a, does, and that is an unbridgeable gulf. And because that gulf is unbridgeable, the creature can never posit creaturely. You can't do Feuerbach reading creaturely ideals that it gets from the creation, goodness, beauty, and truth, and make those exactly correspond to the way God is. Mm -hmm. So what you hit is two great points. Chris was talking about equivocation, really. Reform tend to like the equivocation sometimes, I think, too much, is that God is unlike everything else. And I think what they risk saying that fallen creation is creation at that point. So what do we have here? Three terms for, the, for your week. Write them down. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Podcast fans Podcast everywhere fans again. Out everywhere. those pencils yeah. and note paper. Get them out. This there is will less. be a test next week. There's a test. <laughs> and we've used them before. There's something we called univocal. Let's think of univocal this way. There is a one-to-one -one correspondence, even though the one-to-one -one correspondence is such that God happens to be just a lot bigger. So this would be kind of like allegorical thinking. This would be like Pilgrim's yeah. Progress. Christian... Yeah. In the in the book yeah. is Christian is the Christian. Yep, and this would be saying, for example, that just like God is a trinity of relations, so are we to be a community of relations. Well, that's great, but if you mean univocal, you're an idolater. <laughs> right. What do I mean by univocal? If, if you mean that, that God is nothing more than just a a superior form of human relation, but writ large, creaturely relation writ large. This, now we're getting to kind of personalism and... Well, this is where it's, this is where, this is what has taken over yeah. the theological world, the yeah, Trinitarian thinking and, right, and yeah. the evangelical world. But what has happened is, and this is, it has been a move to the univocal. So, so one-to-one -one correspondence means basically, let's, let's think of it in terms of being. I always teach my students this and they never get it and they get it wrong on the quiz. God 
And humans, when we say they exist, we are not saying they exist in the same way. In other words, there isn't a big circle called existence in which God is at the top and humans are at the bottom. You mean I can't have a personal relationship with God in the way I have, like, with my friend? No, because what happened? But when, check out, what is the higher category? If I draw a circle, existence, what's the highest category? Existence. Existence, and God and creatures are both within it, but God sits at the top. And God is not the highest existence in a chain of existences. I think this is how most Christians think. Well, of and I think that's what, the, what most atheists are attacking. They're attacking this. That's why when they say, does God exist? They're thinking God happens to be the highest existence. In the, no, that whole circle called existence, that's what we're referring to as God. And there isn't God in it. God is it. <laughs> the creature is, is having in in him we live and move and have a being is in this. It's the creature that can or cannot be, not God. And so because of that, whenever we reference being to God and being to the human, we are not talking about them the same way. God's being is uncreated. God is being itself. The human creature has being because it has been endowed from the creator. Now, now, I, I was having a little fun earlier yeah. with, with my note my, yeah. or my statement about the yeah. personal relationship with God. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Well, you're right, though. But, but you see, the thing is, is I think that most evangelical devotional practice yes. is mm-hmm. heretical. Yes, I agree. And, and let's go to the flip side before we get there. So the um, flip- hold it. Mm-hmm. I just want to put in a note here that that statement right there just lost us half our listeners. <laughs> okay. And um, those of you who are still with us, thank you. Well, let me read. Uh, let me. I'll put it this in a footnote. Maybe he's a little better. I don't know. We may lose the rest of the audience after this. <laughs> Uh, we're, we're like the Lord who yeah. says, will you de- leave me as well? Right. <laughs> and what did, what did Peter say? Only you have the words. <laughs> That's right. So only we're talking about this stuff. <laughs> um, so you, you, not, you nivokists, I can't even say it. That's how tough it is. Approach to thinking and speaking about God, conceive God's being as existing in some respect within the same order of being that creatures are. So I'm going to I'm going to give other examples. So this is going to make your points clear, of, of which this univocal, this one-to-one correspondence has crept in theology, and it is directly in the relations that we conceive of God therapeutically. Often, that God is basically a relation to God is like having a relation with our perfect creaturely Father, for example. Now, what does Jesus say? You know, look. Your father's being evil will take care. How much more your father in heaven? Basically, Jesus is saying the analogous point, not the univocal. Your father's being evil, first and foremost, is enough to to negate a direct correspondence between the heavenly father, and this is Glenn's point with holiness. God being holy, you be your father being unholy. If your father's going to care, how much more your father? But we're talking here analogous language we are not talking univocal language and that is what's actually being that's what's being exposed by saying your father may be like the father in caring for the child but god is fundamentally unlike your father in that god is holy and your father is not this is the same thing and so when we talk about a relationship is that while Having a good relationship with my friends and my family and my other church members may be analogous to God because God cares for us and wants to have the most intimate union with us. But God's relationship to us is also fundamentally unlike anything creaturely. So while our relationships, when they are perfectly ordered, may exemplify something of God, God is fundamentally dissimilar to all of the aspects in which they are limited by creatureliness. And this is what gets denied when we deny divine simplicity. Divine simplicity is preserving the utterly distinct fullness of God's plenitude of being and preventing us from reading the creaturely back up into God. Univocal thinking basically reads the creaturely back up into God because there's a direct correspondence between Now, equivocal thinking is the exact other extreme. And it's basically saying, it's sort of what Immanuel Kant in in the theologies came after that did. It's basically God is so transcendent and holy other that there is nothing creaturely like it. So you might as well just idolatrize, you know, create all the idols you want because you're never going to know God as God is. So 
classic Christianity walked the fine line in between those. It prevented the univocal idolatry but with divine simplicity, but it also preserved true analogy, that there is a true correspondence, but the correspondence works, that while the creature is like God, God is not like the creature, both in finitude, in terms of creation, and definitely in holiness in terms of sin and, and, and perfection. Well, let's think a little bit about how this uh, works its way out or you know, yeah. in terms of your, your typical you know, church-going person who just wants to do the right thing. Yes. So you know, one of the things that I, I think, uh, or one of the things I attempt to do in, in my preaching and my teaching is when I, when I talk about when I talk about God, is, is, is I want to convey to people that God is reality. Yeah. With a capital R. Yeah. That there's no other thing. In fact, sin is unreal. It's, sin right. is a kind of, is like living in a fantasy world. That's right. You know, yeah. uh, because God is the only, only one who is truly real and everything depends upon God. Sin is a kind of world we make for ourselves that's mm -hmm. a virtual reality that has no, no basis in reality. And that's why when we invest ourselves in it, we die. We're not investing yeah. ourselves in reality. Hmm. Now, reality also is something personal in one that's sense, right. in the sense that there's an intelligence. Mm -hmm. In other words, we're not just talking about like a force. That's right. We're talking about uh, the perfection of will. And love. Um, I mean, one of the things about creation ex nihilo is it exhibits the personal character of God as God. Mm -hmm. Is that here is the sheer perfection of being who needs nothing else. So the fact that God chooses to create is showing personal, personableness in the highest exemplification that it can be. That here is perfection. So personhood is in some sense a reflection. It's an analogy of, right. of that kind of willing. Mm -hmm. that, 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 that God is merely not inert perfection, but is actually, uh, is actually personal. And personal in such a way that God chooses, God decrees, God ordains, God loves. These, mm -hmm. the, this, is such, this is such where there are analogies, but the difference is God does it out of the plenitude of perfection, and we do it out of lack and need. See, I, I'm, I'm going to go uh, someplace a little weird here. I'm, I want to go to Dante. <laughs> okay, hey. If you read the inscription over the gateway of, to hell in the Inferno, everyone knows the, um, uh, uh, through me, the way to the city of the woe, which is the beginning of it, and abandon all hope you enter here. What they miss is the middle. Yeah. Which is, um, let me see if I can do the translation in my head. Justice, uh, the highest justice made me, uh, uh, divine uh, power formed me, uh, the highest wisdom, the sum of wisdom, and primal loves. Mm -hmm. So hell in Dante is made out of primal loves. Mm -hmm. It's made out of justice, certainly, but primal love. Uh, the, the, the totality of wisdom, the soma sapiens, um, justice, all these different things. And the one that always catches everybody is primal love. Yeah, right. Hmm. Okay, but, loving God ever sent anyone to hell. Right, and how can hell be an expression of divine love? Yeah. And yet, if we understand divine simplicity correctly, these are all different ways of saying the same thing. Yeah. 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 And, and that's the challenge. You know, uh, the, the, the first thing that's going to come to most people's minds if they're Orthodox Christians that aren't familiar with divine simplicity is going to be, well, what about the Trinity? Yeah. Well, well it's a complete misunderstanding. It is, and I'm, I'm going to go there, but if you want you to lead the way. Well, that's no, I'll, 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 leave that, I'll leave that with you. But, but the other part of it is this notion that all of these different things that we talk about as attributes of God, from our finite perspective, they all look different. Yeah. But they're really, in God, they are all the same thing. They are all united. And there's no conflict, there's no tension, there's no contradiction. There isn't even a balance. Because yeah. it's not balance, it's unity. Right, yeah. right. 
And uh, Paul Helm, at the, uh, the introduction to actually Dolezal's first book, uh, he, sa he said very well, and th this will answer, and it is worth doing a show sometime, dragging those Eastern Orthodox listeners, because they sometimes think that what we mean in the West by divine simplicity is, is a certain understanding of divine unity to which their social relational trinity is, is, is in contrast. And... Um, First of all, I think actually you should, you know, I agree, I disagree with him on a lot of other things, especially his universalism, but read David Hart on that. He, he does know the Eastern arguments by Palamas and the rest of the tradition, and, and he, he will, I think, rightly argue that divine simplicity is held across the board through all of classic Christians. That's a whole side note. But anyway, Paul Helm writes, so in thinking about divine simplicity as an account of divine unity, we're not to think of it primarily as a description of the unity, much less as an explanation of it, but as offering rules for appreciating and employing the, the character of divine unity. That's point one. Um, but he's got another great point that complements by contrast, a simple God is not developed by acting, much less by being acted upon. He does not develop at all. His actions express his perfection. They do not contribute to its attainment. Now, another thing he says elsewhere in relation to the Trinity is that division is very different than distinction. There is no division in God. God mm -hmm. is simple essence. Distinction does not does not work that way, and he, he kind of explicates that. But I want to go real quick to show why in the world is this significant. Okay, most people in the pew probably don't even care, but let's put it this way. If, if their pastor's been to seminary, even evangelical seminaries, they're probably reading texts now that are so filled with this junk because I see it everywhere. Um, it's we're talking about junk, we're junk meaning, not but, divine but personal, personalism, that kind of stuff. Personalism. And, and it's, okay, you'll need to define terms. I may need to do it, but one of the things that has replaced classical understandings of being is now something that is called relational being. That we're not dealing with being as some kind of abstract existing, but it's, it's being in relation. That being is always being in relation. And you can see kind of the attraction to, as to some theologians to that. Well, God is eternally being in relation. That constitutes the being of God. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, within the, Trinity. Some, within the Trinity, and therefore, God is eternally being in relation. So, therefore, relational being is intrinsic to the nature of God. Therefore, when He creates, the creating is intrinsic. But one of the next steps that follows from that, when it's not governed by divine simplicity, in, in referencing the unified essence that God is, is that opens that door to univocity. And so, what do I mean by this? So, what, what Dalazal calls theological mutualism, others will call theological personalism. This is the dynamic and dramatic God. Van Hooser writes with, about the dramatic God. God's on this drama in history, and God is constituted, in some sense, by that enactment in history. Um, so, what is basically being said here? There's a lot... Let, let me stop here yeah. and just say... That uh, congregational church on the town green with the rainbow, you know, the, with the rainbow flag, yep. they're into that. Oh, they Don't put a period this. where God put a comma. That's it. Uh -huh. They're into that. So, so people are wondering, how, what, what is all, how does all this relate to me? Off, liberation, all of it will go to this. Yeah. But, 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 yeah. but you actually are, fe yeah. a lot of people feel it, but they don't know what, what to call it. So, yeah. you know, in our church, yeah. in your town, uh, we've got a lot of refugees from liberal churches. Yes. And the, if you were to ask them, do you know what divine simplicity is? They'd yeah. say, I don't know. Yeah. But, <laughs> but they know but where they, it's they been know, violated. <laughs> yeah. but, they, but they know yeah. you know, sort of w what it means to lose it. Yeah. Well, here, here is what it, what, this is it on the theological level. And then we can talk about the, 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 the repercussions of it on the, on the church, church level, the right. Christian level, the understanding of humanity and everything. So, one of the things that happened in, in systematic theology in the mainstream is that there was a huge revival in the 20th century of the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, you, you, we're talking, we went from the 19th century kind of liberalism that saw it as nothing more than uh, just speculative metaphysics of the Greeks imposed on the, the simple biblical fatherhood of God and brotherhood of humanity to seeing, becoming the definitive understanding of what Christianity is. But when that revival in the 20th century happened by big figures like Karl Barth, by Karl Rahner, 
Jürgen Moltzmann, later Robert Jensen, all these figures, Colin Gunton. Um, what you had is this, this big revival, but what you started to have happen is a complete revision of it if you were to place it beside what the church historically confessed and argued for understanding both God and the Trinity. This is one of the things Richard Muller in his introduction to Dalza's other book says. He said, we're at a crossroads point, even in the evangelical and especially in the reform world, where there are two paths that can be taken. And then Muller, being Muller, says, we're always at a crossroads in the church because there's always a path to take, and where that path goes will determine a lot of things. But in this case, we're dealing with the that's issue. That's Muller. And so in this case, we're dealing actually with the crossroads between who God is. And really, if you want to push it, it's between an idol versus the true God. And so, and he said, in his way of putting it, as, a, as you know, as, as Muller tends to be, is, is pretty, pretty, pretty subtle, but also very strong. Let me see if I can find the actual quote here because I do have it with me. So Tom is working through his notes. I right am now. trying to find. Ah, uh, here he it is. He found it. He found it. He found it. Now this is Richard <laughs> Muller's statement. The statement that theology is at a crossroads could be applied to the, at almost any moment in Christ, history of Christian thought. To make that point as a general characterization of the present moment is therefore not saying anything very revolutionary. What matters in each moment is the road taken and not taken. In the present moment, evangelical and reformed theology has before it several roads, one of which is the extension of those theological approaches that have served Christianity through its centuries, while others propose to take Christian doctrine down a series of specious alternative routes and purport to recast various doctrines in ways that seem more appealing to a largely rootless community of postmodern seekers. Okay, stop there for a second. Uh, stop there. So you got the marketers and the pragmatists. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. And so really what is this division between classical Christian theism or Trinitarian theism versus what he, they are calling sort of a mutualist personalist, or another one, Muller brings in, a temporalist understanding of God. So what in the world do we mean by this? Well, this is what we mean by it. So in this modern theology of the Trinity, one of the things that was kind of thrown away with Immanuel Kant was that we can actually talk about God's being in itself. All we can really talk about is God's being as it manifests itself in history. The phenomenal, as Hegel will argue, is all there is. And so because of that, there is no God behind the phenomena. There's only a God, Hegel's God, really manifest in it. Well, Christian theologians who want to talk about the Trinity under these conditions start to induct these conditions in the frame. And so even with Karl Barth, who was tended to be quite cautious on this, he was, as he was bringing the doctrine of the Trinity back in, he was drawing off of Isaac Dorner, by the way, who also started this process. They were already to starting a shift from the classical view of God to one that opened up for a certain kind of identity. Um, well, well, let me put it a different way. For a certain amount of ways in which history starts to become constituted constitutive of the life and being of God. For Karl Barth, it was his strong Christocentrism. He will say there's no second moment in God's being, so therefore God the Son, it's not a second moment where God the Son becomes Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is always who God is determined to be in being God the Son. So what he did by saying that complicated statement is basically say, that God eternally has chosen to determine himself in such a way that the history of Jesus is constituted of who the Son is in relation to the Father. See what's going on there? He's a half a step away from Servetus there. Yes, that's right. But in doing that, he's making the, 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 the creatureliness of Christ, the human nature of Christ, and the history of Christ, not the exhibition of the eternal God, the perfect God in time, 
but actually as something intrinsic to the very nature of God. And of course, he wants to preserve God's freedom by saying God chose to constitute himself this way. This is like Dorner. God chose to enter into a relation where God would be affected by the creation. Sort of like a backwash. That's right. So the sovereignty people can say, yes, God's free. God chose this sovereignly. But he chose it in such a way that he made himself vulnerable, like a vulnerable creature. Mm-hmm. And, but the presumption is God is vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Include, there's something not to be real. Of. I'm all set. You're ready to check. Yeah, well, we're getting we're getting a little long here, so we need to wrap it up. Um, we've we've uh, unpacked a number of things, uh, and I'm afraid that there are a number of things that you know could be said that we won't be able to say yeah, just just because of time. <laughs> but 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 what what you get is uh, a, an array, a sort of like a uh, I don't know a, a petri dish. Yeah. Of heresy, yeah, you yeah. know, where there's a kind of, uh, kind of things are happening in that petri dish that you just can't really fully under sort of in, in, anticipate or predict, but the heresies are multiplying. They multiply, and they they are part of what sets the conditions for the way in which the church, on the other hand, adopts all of these ideas that have been historically in conflict with it to be perfectly acceptable. Because as we shift the understanding of God and relationality and beings in relation and identities and histories, we open the whole door to, to the, the postmodern flux we've actually been given. And we do not have anything. I mean, another way of looking at it is just from Hegel's, Hegel's point, of course, that God is self-realizing God's self through God's interactions in time, right? And so God is becoming God. And so what happens? Each stage, each culture, each cultural experience becomes, for its moment, definitive, but never absolutely so. And so, and so what that does is it, makes, it relativizes any knowing of God and being of God at any particular point. That's probably a good spot to stop. Yeah. yeah, thanks a lot. You are welcome. Are you staying longer? I'm not. Oh, okay. Thank you. So uh, why don't we wrap up with that? Do you have any thoughts, uh, Glenn? <laughs> Can as we, as we finish? I think that this is something that we're going to need to revisit for the simple reason that, you know, we had to lay something of a foundation here, but I think it's really important for us to spend some time unpacking more specifically and clearly the ways that this manifests itself in the modern evangelical world. So I think that that that's really a critical issue and something we really are going to need to talk about at some point. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you on that. Anyway, uh, that's all I have to say. Anything you want to say uh, as we wrap no, up? No, that's kind of warm up. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So anyway, we've uh, had a very complicated conversation <laughs> about divine simplicity. <laughs> and folks will need to listen to it a few times, I imagine. But anyway, we, we, we are grateful that you do listen. Thank you for your support. We have uh, people who, on, a, on an ongoing basis, uh, become members of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network club <laughs> and they designate the theology podcast as their as their as their favorite show and and, and when you do that uh, we actually uh, derive some benefits so to those folks out there who support us in this way we are grateful thank you very much anyway that's it for now bye 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 now. bye